Before we get uh, started this morning, um, I'd like us just to take a moment and as a church, pray together. Um, pray for um, the families in, in Texas that um, have, have one less in their, in their beds and in their homes. Um, so would you just join me in prayer? God, we lift up those families that are in mourning. There are no words, God, that I know how to say that will be the right thing, God. In moments like this, Lord, I trust your word that your heart is broken and that you are near those who are brokenhearted. So draw near to those families, God. And I ask this morning that you do what only you can do. We lift them up. We ask, God, that you carry them in your arms. In Jesus' name, amen. Um, I got to get up here this morning and talk about a thing called goodness. And the heaviness of this week, it feels weird to talk about goodness. Um, so I'm going to do my best. And, and here's, here's how I want to frame this idea. Um, when humans choose to do evil in this world God's response is to find someone who will combat that with good and that's what we see in scripture that God always chooses to use humans to work the good of who he is in our world and so we're going to look at this fruit goodness. We're going to unpack what that means for us and how we can live out goodness as a fruit in our lives. But know this, whenever we pray prayers, God, why don't you fill in the blank? God, why don't you do this? God, why don't you stop this? God, why do you allow this? I believe the response that God has for us, and I think this is what we see played out in Scripture, is that God says, I know. I hate it too. Can you and I do something about it? God never works in the world apart from another human being. We don't see any... any time in scripture where God goes to make a change in the world apart from using a human to actually make it happen flawed as they may be he chooses to use humans to bring about his good in the world and so as we unpack goodness we're going to see that the fruit of goodness is about how we act and operate in and within our world 
We're going to be talking about goodness is a fruit that changes the world. Goodness is the fruit that changes the world. So where we've been at in this journey so far is we've been talking about the fruit of the Spirit. Um, I spoke last week on kindness as a discipline. We talked about what it means to have kindness in our lives. Uh, we're working through goodness and uh, through the lens of goodness that changes the world. Um, and we're in Galatians. Uh, we've been in Galatians for a while. This is where we get the list of the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, Galatians is a letter written to a region. Uh, it's not written to a city. There's no city of Galatia. It is a region of, of, of uh, central Central Turkey, essentially, where they had a bunch of different cities that Paul visited on his missionary work. Uh, he went there, started some churches, left, heard that there were some things going on that, that weren't good, so he writes this letter back to them to help give instruction and teaching on how they uh, ought to to the, the problems that they're having. And then by the end of, of Galatians, when we get into about chapter five, Paul begins to kind of transition into helping them know how to act and interact as a new family, as a community of believers. And so in chapter five, we see this kind of transition. Um, in verse 16, he gets to a point where he makes the statement, so I say then live by the spirit. Um, that word live there is literally means to walk to walk out in the Spirit. We talked a little bit about this last week, that um, this idea that we are to live our lives practicing and working out, walking in the Spirit. It's an activity that happens in our lives. And so he goes on to say that, uh, talk about the dichotomy between walking in the Spirit and the works of the flesh. And so he goes into a, a kind of a long list of all the, the things when you're not walking in the Spirit and you're walking in the flesh, these are the things that are evident in, in one's life. And so he goes into this long list of those those things um, and then he lands in verse 22 and 23 where he pulls out what the what does it look like when someone walks in the spirit or lives in, uh, by the spirit what does that look like well it looks like someone that has things like uh, uh, in verse 22 the fruit of the spirit is love joy peace patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness self-control so he lists out these things these things are virtues these are virtues. These are, these are things that we work at. These are things that we cultivate and we practice in our lives. These aren't gifts, okay? The, the Holy Spirit doesn't give you the gift of self-control, and now all of a sudden I have self-control and I'm good. No, these are things that you practice, that you work at. As you're trying to walk in the Spirit, you are working out how to have self-control or how to have patience. And so um, John uh, chapter 15, verse 8, records Jesus is talking about the fruit, and he says, this is how uh, um, uh, you will know that you are my true disciples by, he says, producing fruit. And so he says, when you produce much fruit, you are my true disciples. So Jesus talks a lot about fruit as the outworking of one's life who is committed um, to the way of Jesus, that, that they produce fruit. And so Jesus talks about that, that a true disciple, someone that produces fruit. And Paul comes in much later and says, okay, but this is what this actually looks like. So he begins to name the kinds of qualities and characteristics and virtues that someone has in if they are following in the way of Jesus. And so this is where we land in this. We're working through how do we, as followers of Jesus, walk out the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. Um, and know this, that the fruit of the Spirit isn't just like um, um, fruits. It's singular. It's not something that you just take one without the other. I can't say I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the fruit of love, but I'm going to ignore the fruit of kindness, okay? Um, the thing is, is that these are all intertwined together. And you'll see as 
as you study and you think through these things, like, right, what causes me to be kind? Well, it's love, right? So I have love, and it leads to kindness, and kindness leads to goodness, and all these things, like, they, they're interwoven together. It's one singular thing that we work at being and, and work out in our lives, and so um, so as we look at this, we're going to look at goodness uh, this morning. So let's talk a little bit about goodness. Um, goodness in the Bible, the word, the word goodness, when you have the English word goodness in your Bible, it's a multifaceted word. Um, it can mean a lot of different things. And there are a lot of um, Greek words that get translated as goodness because it's, the, it's a similar word. There's a lot of nuance in, in, in its usage. But when you look at the word goodness as it's listed in the fruit of the Spirit, that Greek word that they're translating into goodness is only used four times in your New Testament. That Greek word is only used four times. And in every instance that that word is used in your New Testament, it's used to mean good works. Because there is a goodness that we can have that's kind of an internal goodness, like a, like a kind of a quality of a human, the goodness. And there's lots of different ways you can use that word. But in this instance specifically, the fruit of the Spirit is talking about good works, the things that you do. And this has been a part of a feature of early Christianity, uh, the early churches. Um, since the very beginning, good works has been tied to what it means to be uh, the community of, of Jesus followers. And and uh, when you actually look at the writings of um, the earliest writings about Christians, um, as non-Christians would observe these weird, peculiar uh, uh, groups of people that are forming, we have actually writings of people that would write about, about the Christians. And the earliest sources that we have, non, non-Christian sources about Christians, um, there, there are a few. Uh, one of them is a guy I've talked about in the past. His name is Pliny the Younger. Pliny the Younger is a guy who wrote to the Emperor Trajan. He was a governor. And he was observing these weird communities popping up in his region. And, uh, and so he's writing to the emperor Trajan to ask him about what, what they should do about these, these Christians. Like, what should we do about them? And so we have this letter uh, that dates to around uh, uh, 113 AD. So really, really at the end of the first century, writing about Christians. And he says, and, and he observes them for a while. And then in this letter, this is what he says he's observed about the Christians. Um, he says this, They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light. When they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to God and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word, nor deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up. This is Pliny's the Younger. He's no friend to Christians. In fact, he kills Christians. Uh, Trajan, in his response, gives him the approval, says, yep, you can, if they don't, if they don't submit to the emperor, um, you, you can take them to court, you can, you can kill them. And and so, and he does actually. So he's no friend of Christians, but that's his observations: is that these are these are a group of people. They get together once a week. Um, they sing some songs together, uh, and and they take this oath to not like do anything bad, right? To let their word be. So this is the observation of an outsider looking in at this community. Another early source that we have on what Christians were like uh, comes from a uh, a guy named Lucian. And Lucian was, uh, he writes in around the 170s, so shortly after um, Pliny the Younger, but still a real early source on Christianity. And he was no friend of Christians either. He hated Christians. He made fun of them in a lot of his writings. He would write poems, and he would write short stories. And in it, he would use 
use uh, as the joke Christians. Christians would be the brunt of his insults. And, uh, and so he writes in his observations about Christians, he says this, the Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account, was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers from the moment they are converted and deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage and live after his laws." His law. So his observation, Lucian is saying, is this group of people that think that they're all of a sudden like family once they come a part of this community and they make this oath. They think they're, they're brothers and, and that's weird. And, uh, and they worship this, this God that, that, that died and they deny the Greek gods and they live after his laws. And when we think of the laws of Jesus, um, our minds should go to what Jesus said is the, the two important things. Love God, love who? Others. Right? Your neighbor as yourself. Love, love others. And so these are, this is the law of Christ. So, so this community is living after this law that they're to love others, love their neighbor as themselves. And they call themselves brothers when they join. Super weird is what he says. And so these are the observations that the, the early church was, was a community that um, in their expression of love towards others, they, they actually they, they did good things. Pliny the Younger, he says, you know, they didn't do these things. So the opposite of, of good things is they, they said they didn't do wicked things and, um, and so on. And so these are virtues that have driven the church forward. And, um, and these kinds of things aren't new to history. Okay, we talked about this last week. Um, these virtues, these things that Paul lists out, they're not new to history. In fact, Aristotle in his second book on ethics talks about virtues quite a bit. Uh, but for Aristotle, uh, he always saw virtues as the solo performance of a unique individual. So it was about what the individual did to uh, strive to a higher way of living. Um, and, it, and, it was, and it was a unique individual. Aristotle would say that not everybody gets there. In fact, the, the people that do have these virtues that he lists he would say that they are the exception, not, not the, the normal. Um, and so it's a hard thing to achieve for. But for him, it was about the solo performance. For Paul, it was different. For Paul, Christianity, Christian virtue is a team sport. For Paul, you can't do love, peace, patience, gentleness, and kindness on, all by yourself. You can't do it by yourself. For Paul, the community of believers was um, essential to, to living out walking in the Spirit. And, and, and here's the thing that we need to remember about this. Christianity is not a privatized religion. Meaning you can't do Christianity on a solo effort. You can't do it. You, you need, we need each other. We, we need each other, okay? And, and, and Paul is very clear about this as he goes on in his teachings. We talked a little bit about that last week. Um, the last thing I'll, I'll bring up about uh, this idea of, of these Christian virtues is that um, these things that Paul lists out, goodness, faith, and patience, kindness, these aren't just things that are unique to, to followers of Jesus. Just because you're a follower of Jesus like, doesn't mean you're, you're, you get the special ability to do these things. Of course we know non-followers of Jesus, non-Christians that display tremendous goodness, good works, tremendous kindness, tremendous self-control. Like we see, I know people, there are people in my life that do not love Jesus but have a lot of these virtues, these qualities. And, and, and so you can do these things apart from Jesus. Here's the difference, though, that we need to understand is that for the follower of Jesus, to be a disciple of Jesus, we must produce fruit. So to be a follower of Jesus, you don't get a choice. You don't get a choice to reject good works. 
You don't get a choice to reject kindness or patience or self-control. You don't get the choice. To be a follower of Jesus means that you have these fruits in your life. Okay? And so that, that's a little bit of a difference, right? Is that for the non-believer, they have no moral obligation to act in those ways. In fact, they can choose at times to show tremendous good works and goodness and times to go, no, I'm going to sleep in. No, I'm not going to help. They get that choice. We can't look at our neighbor who's in need and not help. Like, that's just not a part of the Christian way. Okay? So, a little bit of difference there. So, no way am I talking about these virtues in such a way that gives us some moral high ground, okay? That's not the case. We're, we're trying to encourage us to say, how are we actually walking these things out as a part of our daily lives? Okay, so the church is a movement towards good works for the benefit of the world. The church is a movement of good works for the benefit of the world. And so uh, we're going to move through unpacking this in, in a couple of different ways. The first way we're going to look at is that um, uh, goodness changes the world. Goodness, good works changes the world. Um, I want to tell you a story of two of my favorite um, um, people to, to learn about. The first one is a guy named Basil of Caesarea. Basil of Caesarea. We all know Basil, right? Uh, Basil, he was a leader in the early church, roughly in the 300s, um, and uh, he was uh, an incredible human being. He believed that to literally follow Jesus, um, you, ha you are compelled, you must serve and give to the poor. To reject the needy is to, is to literally reject Christ. This is, this is how much he believed. He would preach and teach that, that the, the mission and the movement of the church is to care for those who are in need and the poor and the weak and the destitute and, and those who don't aren't Christians. I mean, that's how much, how hard he would preach that message. But it wasn't just simply how hard he preached it. Uh, Basil of Caesarea did something that was uh, absolutely incredible and unique to his day and age that he lived. You see, he created these buildings. He, he, he had these buildings constructed that they called poor houses, poor houses. And these poor houses, uh, what they were called, um, had six sections in them. And these six sections were housed for uh, different kinds of people. They had a section for lepers that could come in and get cared for. They had a section for uh, widows to get cared for. They had a section for the sick, the general sick, and, and to be cared for. Um, they had a section to care for babies that Christians would rescue off of the street because according to Roman law, you could discard your baby if you didn't want it, and they would put it on the street. It's a very common practice. We have a letter from a Roman soldier writing back to his family, uh, dating to um, uh, uh, roughly around 80, uh, AD, uh, around that first century. Um, but he writes back to his family, and, and, he, and essentially in the letter he talks about, hey, I'm getting paid. I'm going to send the, the funds back to you. Um, I know that you're going to be having our child soon. If it's a boy, keep it. If it's a daughter, uh, discard it. And I'm looking forward to coming home soon we'll see you then just a very haphazard just statement and if you're not you can gloss right over it if it's a if it's a girl discard it this was a common practice and so what happens the early christians started going on the streets and they'd see discarded babies they'd rescue the babies and take them in and basil created these poor houses where you could take these babies to be cared for now what's unique about this story uh, of what he did in these poor houses the next step that he took it is that he had um, in staff 24 7 doctors and nurses that lived in these poor houses to care for these people what basil did was created the genesis of what we now call modern hospitals we have hospitals today because of Basil Caesarea. 
because he created these places. Now, did, was there medical care for people in the ancient world? Absolutely. See, if you served in the Roman army, you would get cared for if you got hurt. And now this wasn't because they cared for the person. The Roman army wasn't going like, we really care about, you know, their, no, they wanted you to fight. So of course they would care for you. Uh, if you were really wealthy, you could hire a doctor to come to your house and take care of you for sure. And that happened. Um, also, there were temples of healing where if you were sick, you could go and you could pay an alm um, to the goddesses and gods and sleep in the temple and, and believe that maybe you would be healed that way. You'd wake up and be healed. Um, so there were different forms of medical care, but nothing existed like what Basil did. 24-7 in care, sections for different kinds of people that you had a medical staff trained and ready to help you as you came in and anyone was welcome to come in. This was a first in all of history. Basil believed so much that the calling of the Christian is to care for the poor and the destitute and the sick, that he didn't just preach it. He did something, a good work, that actually changed our world. And we are the benefit of that today in modern hospitals. Pretty incredible. The other guy I'm, I, I think is pretty amazing is a guy named Augustine of Hippo. Augustine of Hippo is, is, was uh, writing in the 400s. Um, and so uh, he, we have tons of his writing. He was a prominent figure in early Christianity. Lots of his writings still exist today that we go back and we can read and see how Christians operated and functioned um, that early on in, in Christian, uh, Christianity and the development of Christianity. And, uh, and so he was a leader of the church in Hippo. Hippo was a poor city in northern Africa. And so uh, kind of the northern um, uh, east side of Africa was this, this small city. It was a port city called Hippo. And so he oversaw the church in that region, uh, specifically the city of Hippo. And so this is Augustine of Hippo. And um, he, we have a letter that he writes to a friend of his. And he's writing to his friend about a concern that he's seeing in his city. Um, you see, um, and I have an image of the city, the, the remains of it. This is the excavation of the city of Hippo. And, um, and I'll leave that up there because um, what's interesting is that uh, he's writing a letter to his friend. There's a concern that's happening. Slave trading has um, expanded in his city. Um, slave traders from uh, Galatia, oddly enough, where Paul is writing back to, um, slave traders from Galatia would go to Hippo and capture slaves and then redistribute them in all throughout the Roman Empire. And uh, we have in this letter that, that Augustine is telling us uh, about the, the tragedies that are happening because it's escalating. Slave trading existed uh, well before him um, and was a part of normal societal kind of inner workings, but it had grown. It, it was getting worse and worse and worse. And so he's trying to get his, his friend who was in Italy to, to help him do something about it. And he writes about, he tells stories about how um, uh, the slave traders would come into his region and, um, uh, and parents were selling their kids into slavery for profit. 
So he talks about moms and dads that are selling their kids to these slave traders. He tells of a story of a woman who is luring other women into the woods, and you can see kind of the woodland kind of mountainous areas there, into the woods um, um, by, by telling them that they could buy some lumber from her, and they would, they would lure, she would lure these women into these woods, and then she would capture them and sell them to the slave traders. There's a story he tells in this letter about a monk he was traveling the roads through Hippo. He was captured, beaten, sold into slavery. Um, he talks about how the roads, you can't, you can't hardly travel them anymore without threat of someone coming after you and selling you into slavery. And so he's writing his friend about this. And what's amazing about this letter, right? At first we're going, this is crazy what he's talking about. But then he goes on to this story and he says, there was a guy in our church who, and this is the paraphrase, Joe, um, there's a guy in our church who saw that there was a slave ship in the port. So he goes to the church, rallies a bunch of church members. They all board the ship and free 120 slaves off the ship, bring them back to their homes in the church to hide them until they can get them to safety. A bunch of church members raided a slave trading ship and freed 120 slaves, he tells us. Now, what's even more incredible about that story, yes, it's amazing, they did this and, and they took care of these people. They took it upon themselves to do a good work. What's, what's crazy about this is the reason why Augustine's writing, the reason why we have this letter and this information is Augustine is scared now because what they did was against the law. They broke the law freeing these slaves and Augustine was afraid of what was going to happen, what was going to come against them by breaking this law. That's incredible. That good works, this good works that God calls us to, sometimes flies in opposition of what the norms are in society. And here they were, saying, you know what, no, we're going to go free them. And I wonder... And this was just a side thought of mine. In Galatians chapter 3, you have this amazing statement that Paul makes. He says, there is no male, no female, no Jew, no Greek, no slave, no free. But all are one in Christ. I wonder if this region of Galatia that was known for their slave trading, Paul's making a statement about what we see in human life and the value. And although outright opposition and writing against slavery in the church didn't happen until Gregory of Nyssa some 80 years later all throughout the Christian movement we have we have records of Christians and churches freeing slaves all the time because what they believed about the human made in God's image all that to say you have a goodness in Basil who sets up because of his care of the poor so it changes the world. You have a movement of a, of a bunch of church people breaking the law, freeing slaves because of the goodness, the good works they believe in the human that is being taken. All of this is bound in this idea of loving others. Basil, loving others, the poor and the destitute, right? These church members loving others, risking their lives to board a slave trading ship and freeing 120 of them. Love others. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 14, Paul makes this statement. For the whole law can be summed up with this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And to love someone 
in the biblical sense is not to simply have affection for them. It's to actually do good towards them. That's what it means to love in the biblical sense. It's not just a, I feel good about this person. I love them. I have affection. I care about them. Love in the Bible is about the things that you do. John chapter 15, verse 13. I don't have it on the screen, but it says, there's no greater love than to lay down one's life for a friend. And 1 John 3, 16 says, we know what real love is because Jesus gave up his life for us. So we also ought to give up our lives for our brothers and sisters. And what's the most famous verse, most quoted verse in all of the Bible? Do you know it? John 3.16, right? Say it with me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Did you know you're misquoting that verse? We're misquoting that verse. We say it, for God so loved the world, which implies this affection that we have, or God has towards us, which is true. But the Greek actually literally reads, for this is the way God loved the world. Do you hear the subtle difference? The difference is in that it's not simply that God loved us so much he chose to do something, but it's that this is the way that God demonstrates his love towards us that he gave. That's what the text is actually saying. For this is the way that God demonstrates his love. It's action-oriented. Do you see that? Love, right? Love leads to action. We see it in Basil. We see it in Augustine. We should see it in ourselves. The command to love others is fulfilled by your doing good for others. It's about others. It's about others. We also see that goodness begins with you. Goodness begins within you, I should say. Goodness begins within you. Um, in the popular story, uh, Charles Dickens, A Christmas Carol, we all know that story, right? We've seen the movie. Uh, the best iteration of that movie uh, was clearly a Muppet's Christmas Carol. Um, very much so. Uh, best iteration to date. Um, in that story, uh, uh, just recapping for you, you have Scrooge, right? And Scrooge is this guy that through the course of his life has developed such a negative attitude and focus on life. His heart's cold. He's, he's, he's old. He's hunched down. It's just this, you know, this very physicality tied to his personality and what's going on in his heart. Through the course of the event, of the fateful night, um, his heart begins to open up and change. And what do we see at the end of every story? You see an Ebenezer that moves like this, that he's upright now and he's jumping around and, 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 uh, and, uh, and begins to act in, in goodness towards others. And two things that, that strike me about this story that I think is, is true to us today, that number one, goodness, good works begins within you. It begins within you. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 33, a tree is identified by its fruit. If a tree is good, its fruit will be good. If it's bad, verse 35, he goes on to say, a good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart. Goodness starts within you, right? And the good gut check on this is that if you see someone in need, what's your first thought? Do you look at your watch? Do I have enough time for this? I don't have enough money. I don't have enough resources. I don't have enough time. I don't have, I don't have, do we go through the litany of the things that we don't have? Or do we spring to action as the people of God, eager to do good works in the fruit of the Spirit? Okay? When we see that mill train post, someone in need that needs a mill, 
Is our first reaction to go, oh, I don't know what to make, and I'm not good at this, da-da-da? Or do we go, it doesn't matter. I need to step in and help. And you sign up and you figure it out. Right? A movement towards good works. It starts within you. And so the gut check you got to ask, or the heart check you got to ask is, what's my response when an opportunity to do good, when I see my neighbor struggling in some way, maybe it's yard work or whatever, is my response to look over and go, oh, yeah, I don't want to do that? Or do we get our work boots on and our gloves out and we go over and we help? And I know this is kind of like the hard part. I'm not trying to guilt or shame us into anything. I'm just asking because it's something I have to wrestle with. How many times have I ignored an opportunity to do good in the world? And, 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 and Jesus is calling me to it. But I ignore that call because I'm scared. I'm busy. Whatever that means, I ignore it. That should not be so. So we got to check our hearts. But something else changes to us. So, so goodness is something that starts within us, but when it does and it, and, it, and it cultivates and comes out of us, something happens to us physically. Something changes in us when we offer goodness. In the 1980s, there was a, co- uh, a term that was coined um, that uh, is called the helper's high. Um, uh, researchers determined it's the helper's high. And uh, what they found is that there are studies that actually are correlated to that when you help People, when you offer goodness, something happens to you. And the study showed this. Research reveals that the act of helping others can lower blood pressure, combat loneliness and depression, reduce chronic pain and stress, all of which help boost the individual's immune system, fight off disease, and promote a longer life. I might go as far to say that God designed us in such a way that when we offer good and do good for others, we actually live healthier lives. And God goes, yeah. To be a healthy human, you must do good. And when you do good, you actually activate within you the the way I made you. And you'll actually be healthier when you offer goodness. Goodness, the fruit that changes the world. And I might go as far as to say, goodness is the fruit that also changes you. So, as we walk in the Spirit this week, we're going to move to our take-home um, a wrap up this morning as we offer um, our lives to God and begin to walk out in the spirit the challenge is going to be that we must then begin to cultivate and practice good works goodness to those around us and listen um, right now like with the tragedy that happened in Texas right now the things that we can do might, might simply be prayer right and we believe that's powerful and that God can move mountains through prayer amen Prayer is powerful, right? I can't stand the posts that say, we need to stop praying and, and, okay, right? There can be, but prayer is our most powerful weapon, we believe, as followers of Jesus. So we can continue to pray. But there's, there's evil that happens around you. Evil in the form of other humans being downgraded and, 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 and um, um, discarded. That's evil. They're made in God's image. How can you offer goodness? When we look at the tragedies of our world and our communities, and we begin to ask the question, God, will you do something? God, every time is going to look at you and go, I'm so excited you're raising your hand because I want to do something too. And I want to use you to make it happen. But Joe, I don't know what I can do. Yeah, that's the question, right? 
How eager are you to do good works? How much do you want to partner with God to change the world? God will make a way. We're hungry enough. So as we pray this prayer and we talk about what it means to live out good works this week, I'm going to, I'm going to warn you. As you pray a prayer, God help me to, to be someone that demonstrates goodness around me. God's going to call you to do something. It's not just a little heartwarming prayer. Get ready to be mobilized and watch what God can do. Take home as we look at how are you being the church to those around you? In what ways does goodness play an active role in your life, if at all? And how can you live with goodness starting today towards those around you? These are the things that as we prepare for communion, I want you to sit with, consider, and contemplate. And so for the next few minutes, let's just sit in those questions and allow God to speak to us as we prepare for communion. If you didn't get a communion cup, uh, we have our helpers up here. Just lift your hand. And as they make their way to the back, they'll actually uh, get one over to you. And, um, and you can hold on to it. We'll take communion in a minute. So would you just sit with me for a minute and contemplate and wrestle with God in regards to these questions?